You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Eli. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm good. Well, good. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Eli Lake, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, formerly known as Bloomberg View. Correct. And, and and go ahead. Uh, I will have, but we're I guess we're not talking about it. But I will have a a, a commentary magazine piece coming out uh, next week related to Trump and Russia. Correct. And and that may maybe we'll if we have time at the end just just do like a a little yeah. tease a little tease on that yeah. get get people uh, thinking about it twenty four seven until it actually comes out. Um, but today we're going to talk about Iran. Um, yes. Uh, I just spent the last few minutes glancing at things you've recently written about Iran on Bloomberg Opinion. And I was reminded, uh, actually, and I mean this sincerely of how valuable it is, because on the one hand, you have an ideology that I think you'll agree is entirely wrongheaded. No? Right-headed. Right-headed. Sure. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yours is lake-headed. Mine is right-headed. Yeah. You will agree that if my if my ideology is right-headed, then yours would be wrong-headed because we do. Disagree. I would agree that we disagree on uh, deep ideological questions on, uh, on America's role in the world. Yes. On the other hand, you are no mere propagandist. You do actual reporting. You don't hide your ideology, but you do actual illuminating reporting, and you try to keep it honest, which is all that any one human being can do. So uh, let's actually start um, by talking about your most recent piece, which uh, among its virtues uh, tries to answer the question of like, what is the long-term strategy uh, surrounding um, the, the uh, assassination, which you may or may not call it, of uh, Soleimani, the, the commander of the, uh, of the Quds Force. Um, and, uh, and the Revolutionary Guard, right? He's the commander of the whole Revolutionary Guard. And in any event, the most important military figure in Iran, I think you'll agree, arguably the second most important political figure, but a very, very high-ranking guy. I don't think he's the head of the Revolutionary Guard. He okay. is the head of the Quds Force, but he is okay. enormously, he was enormously powerful. And I agree that he's probably the second most powerful figure in Iran. Okay. Was. Was. Um, and so you have this uh, this kind of theory of the case about, and I don't know if you mean that this is exactly what was on Trump's mind, but this is a justification that we now know was floating around the White House, actually well in advance of this. They've been talking about killing That's right. Soleimani and I don't, I don't want to profess ago. to know what is in Trump's mind. In fact, I think that Trump's – it's hard to discern, but I think that Trump thinks that he can get a deal. And I think that Trump also wants to avoid um, an Iraq – 2003 style war in the Middle East. I think he, his instincts are to end endless wars, as he says a lot. So I don't, but at the same time, I also think that the, the, the memos that I wrote about from um, a former consultant at the National Security Council named David Wormser Mm -hmm. were not arguing for a 2003 style intervention for, uh, in Iran, but rather what he, what I, what I'm calling regime disruption and what is that he outlines there is this sort of take advantage of 
the delicate balance in his analysis of the leadership in Iran and to kind of put them on their back foot and uh, play into the legitimacy crisis that they face internally. Okay. Now, veteran neocon watchers may recognize the name David Wormser. I'm not actually one of these kind of like historians of neoconservatism, but I know that people who are, at least people who are and are hostile to it, um, often mentioned this memo, A Clean Break, that he was a contributor to in the 90s. And uh, he's mentioned as as having uh, exerted some kind of nefarious influence, I think, during the Bush administration, presumably the run up to the Iraq war. But um, so he's been around a long time. You quote from, uh, and I guess is is a Bolton, uh, a long time, as you suggested, a long time Bolton associate. So he got this memo circulated, I guess, in the White House months ago. Uh, and here's one quote from it. Iran has always been careful to execute its ambitions and aggressive aims incrementally to avoid Western reactions, which depart from the expected. Now, I, I well, let's go on. So in contrast were unexpected rule-changing actions taken against Iran. It would confuse the regime. It would need to scramble. Uh, he considers this a good thing. He, he thinks um, this would, quote, rattle the delicate internal balance of forces and the control over them upon which the regime depends for stability and survival. Uh, so presumably he's looking forward to this leading to regime change. Um, well, regime change, I think, the, I think he predicts, and I should say that there's a series of memos, and I'm probably going to be doing other pieces on this, so I did not write about everything, but his analysis is that he expects that there will be at some point a, a potential regime collapse, and he, do, he, he doesn't think that that's something that, um, he thinks that there are things that America can do to try to influence the direction of what comes next, but not in terms of an invasion or the kinds of interventions that we would associate, you know, more directly. Like, you know, I mean, the, the, the one that comes to mind in the context of Iran, of course, is Mossadegh. And I don't, he, he doesn't argue for a kind of CIA who, who was, who was operation. The, the prime minister like who was overthrown with our help in 1953. Right. Mm-hmm. Kermit Roosevelt and the MI6. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I think, uh, look, I'm sure if, if you're into regime change, probably, especially in this case, your ideal form is that it's internal and you just uh, kind of help foment it maybe, but you don't have to send troops in. I think, well, later I want to talk about what war would mean. And I don't think either of us thinks war would actually mean ground troops in Iran. In any event, this is not the Wormser scenario. He's just hoping to kind of, I gather, induce regime change well, or he he believe, kind- yeah i think he's looking at the i mean i would say the current wave of unrest starts at the end of 2017 and he is looking at that and and he's hardly alone in this regard i mean plenty of kind of liberal iran analysts i guess have looked at this and said wow this is different than before because it's widespread throughout the country it's different strata of iranian society and it is, it's not a, a movement for reform. It's really, they're calling for death of Khamenei. They're calling for, uh, fundamental change. And, you know, we know that, I mean, they, there has been a movement in Iran now for some time, but really has picked up steam where there's, they're calling for basically a kind of referendum that would eliminate, um, the, the, the office of the supreme leader and kind of return it to, what might be the pre-monarchist um, sort of democratic 
style. Now, I, it's hard to judge because we, we see a lot of this on social media and we know that there is a movement of people. I think they're called the 12 or the 13 that come up and say, I am now part of this, this 13 who sort of give their names publicly to say, we, we need to have this referendum. And they replace the ones after they're arrested. And, and that's been going on now for more than a couple of years. Um, but again, there are other very smart people who would argue that, um, you know, that there, there's just sort of dissatisfaction and it doesn't necessarily go in a democratic reaction direction. Um, there, there are certainly, I think you can't argue that there will always be an element of the population that kind of likes the regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, so it's messy. I don't like think that, um, I think Twitter is a bad medium, but I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, there are what, 80 million people in Iran and they don't all believe the same thing. But there is a significant movement that is broader than just students at Tehran University or former reformers uh, or just Iranian elites who have been driven out of the country. It's bigger than that now. And there in that respect, um, I think that that's something that a lot of people have looked at, including Wormser. OK. Now, at the same time, I mean, in terms of uh, assessing uh, the, the kind of how how astute Wormser is in hoping that things might unfold, you know, toward uh, regime change uh, of a reasonably, uh, of a not overly tumultuous kind, I guess. Um, he, he write, you write, Wormser predicted that many Iranians would welcome a strike on a senior commander such as Soleimani. Then you quote from him, Wormser wrote, Iranians would both be impressed and potentially encouraged by a targeted attack on symbols of repression. Now, it seems to me that the immediate reaction to the Soleimani killing uh, kind of suggests that he was off base here. I would, wouldn't you guess that he was surprised by the nature of the reaction? I mean, by the by all accounts, I've heard this was a larger and seemingly more heartfelt protest then the regime can turn out on its own. Of course, the regime was going to do what it could to turn out its loyalists, but this was a this was a huge uh, number of people in the in the streets of uh, in in this it went in streets of I think various cities in Iran. And um, so don't don't you think now? Of course, we can talk about what happened later with Iran uh, inadvertently, accidentally shooting down the airline or whether that validates other parts of his expectation. But don't you think what happened right after the Soleimani thing suggests either that Wormser was wrong or, well, I'll stop there and I think it may suggest something else. But what do you think about that? As I said, I think it's clear that there are going to be a segment of the Iranian population that views Soleimani as a kind of national hero that like his expansionist policies. I don't claim that the people who have been protesting and lost their lives and freedoms, uh, like directly protesting the expansionist war that Soleimani has waged in the region saying, you know, I think one of the popular slogans since 2017 has been something along the lines of, you know, Iran for Iran, not for Syria, not for Palestine, not for Yemen. Uh, so I'm not arguing that there isn't a segment of the population where that is certainly true, that they would view that as a, 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 a terrible act and that they, and that so that there, so there wasn't a segment who probably, who, who did like him, I also think that there was 
I mean, there have also been reports that they were busing in people from, you know, the countryside um, to show up, that there was um, a sense. And I think if you live, I've been to Iran once, but I, you know, you hear from people who live in Iran that this was, I mean, it, 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 it takes enormous courage if you think about what happened more recently, like a couple of days ago, and I think it's still happening, to then take to the streets against the regime in a moment like that, because uh, well, we saw what happened in November and December, when there are estimates of 1,500 people who were just shot down by um, kind of these anti-riot police types. Um, so I think that it's hard if you see that there was popular support for those kinds of protests, and that Every Iranian knows that at the top of that repressive system is Soleimani. So I think that there's also a number of Iranians who uh, sort of despise Soleimani, who saw him not only as reckless, but as the symbol of their repression. And that there were also Iranians who see him and, and they feel a sense of sort of patriotism and they suffered this as a great loss. I think it's possible to say that there are both kinds of people in the country. Um, and I just would say that you're right that it was a lot of people that were on camera who were mourning Soleimani. Some of that, as I acknowledge, is genuine emotion, and that was real. Some of it was also clearly, you know, um, a show for the cameras. And we know that because there was a lot that the regime did in terms of trying to bring in people to these demonstrations to show that they were, you know, that they had rallied around the flag, which is why I think it's so significant that... I mean, Only this, a few days later that we see the protest yet again. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, there are in the history of regimes of, of authoritarian regimes struggling for survival. There are certainly cases where they kind of try to turn out a crowd and do an embarrassingly bad job or do oh, a mediocre true. job. This was different. And I think that says something. But let me um, ask about your use of expansion. As you said, well, maybe there are some people. Yes, there are some people in Iran who support. Suleimani's, uh, what, the expansionist policy he represents. I mean, don't you think, I, I mean, you'll agree probably that there are a lot of serious analysts who would say, well, they don't view it as expansionist. At least some of them see Soleimani as somebody who is keeping Iran safe from what they see as threatening forces in the region. I don't want to replay too much of the history. I will say, Great opportunity to plug my newsletter, Nonzero Newsletter. I, I read your, your thing on Okay, that well, about, good. Yeah. Okay, so at nonzero.org, people can sign up for free. And, and I went through the whole history of uh, Iran's interactions with um, re- various nations, certainly including Iraq, which, started a, which invaded it in 1980, led to a horrible war. The U.S. supported uh, Iraq. Uh, the only nation that supported Iran was Syria. Well, um, and secretly, America and Israel also supported Iran through something. Well, the I think as time went on, they started kind of scandal. Well, arms for hostages, I think, was um, uh, was it was an opportunistic uh, way to get money um, to I forget the details, but to support some other nefarious Reagan. No, it, was, it was it was they used the profits of the of the sale right. of the tow missiles I think, to help I think fund the agree. Congress, but. But that was not the reason. That was the original yeah. reason for the yeah. mission was to release hostages, and it was also fairly cynical. But the view was yeah. that you know Saddam wasn't so terrific either, and you know made the two sides fight longer. I mean that yeah. is that yeah, was no, originally. As time it. went on, I would say both right. uh, the U.S. got more opportunistic in playing both sides. Uh, at the same time, I would say it's it's a it's a legitimate and valid Iranian perception that on balance uh, and when it mattered. 
the U.S. was was helping Iraq. That's not a crazy perception on their part. And what I'm talking about is the perception of Iraq here. What it looked like to Iraq when America, which had not only supported the aforementioned uh, overthrow of a democratically elected leader in 1953, but had supported Iraq in 1980, what it looked like to Iran when America occupied Iraq. That was terrifying. That is the context in which uh, Soleimani supported Iraqi insurgents who did kill uh, Americans and so on. But anyway, in, in that issue of my newsletter, which is, you can see it, nonzero.org, and uh, I laid out the whole timeline in an attempt to get people to look at things from Iranians, from Iran's point of view, which I think is a valuable exercise with any country. Just, just understand what's going on in their head, whether or not you want to wind up uh, sympathizing. Um, so where was I before? Well, you, were, I, you were saying that, that, that there's an argument that Iran's yeah, that, campaign, that, that, yeah, policy okay, so, campaign yeah. in the don't, Middle East is actually don't defensive. You, don't you credit to some extent the argument that the people supporting Soleimani in those demonstrations are not, uh, you know, bloodthirsty, uh, aspiring imperialists. They are people who felt that in a very threatening environment, remember, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, all of them viewed, uh, not without some evidence as, you know, countries that have hostile intentions toward Iran, to say the least. Um, don't you think it's possible that uh, they viewed Soleimani as somebody who was uh, creating a buffer in, in you know, in, in various places? And yes, a network of uh, proxies that could defend Iran's interests that could deter attack against Iranian territory and so on. Don't you think that's actually a not uncommon perception in Iran? I'm sure there are, you can find Iranians who believe that. I mean, they, they're, they're, that is the regime's position. I mean, that there are people in the regime who think, you know, they're, the leadership of that country, that's clearly what their policy is. I don't think that Soleimani was acting in a rogue fashion. I think he was following what the Supreme Leader thought i thought in some ways he viewed it as an opportunistic approach and he emulated it i mean listen i obviously we disagree on his killing i think he was a horrendous and terrible person and it's good that he's dead but on the other hand i can also separate that and say that for him to build up this network of proxy forces from yemen to lebanon to syria and iraq in a matter of a little over a decade is a fairly impressive feat that I think when I've talked to American generals who have an admiration for him and Petraeus has said this publicly. Um, but on your point about the, this was defensive. Um, I would just say that in 2003, uh, the U S uh, had diplomacy with Iran to, make it clear that they were not going to attack Iran, that they were using, at the time, um, Iraqi Arab Shia forces that had been uh, harbored by the Iranians as part of this future government. The elections that happened because of the U.S. intervention managed to empower successively Shia majorities and parties that were close to Iran, and that this was under George W. Bush and later Barack Obama, this was, you know, U.S. policy. Um, and that is, I think, an important distinction in this particular case, which is that the U.S. was uh, willing to let Iraqis participate and kind of form their own democracy. And they 
you know, were wanted to work with parties that even though historically you could say these parties were hostile to American aims in the region in a broader sense and also close to Iran, which had, you know, obviously been in many ways an enemy of the United States. And yet, nonetheless, the approach from Iran really beginning, I guess, in 2003, 2004, was not just to begin to attack American forces there, but the other part of it that I think sometimes is lost is that they created, and, and you mentioned El Salvador, they created death squads too, that were interested in cleansing Sunni Arab populations. Now, this is in the middle of a horrendous right. aftermath of the fall of Saddam, where you saw the rise of al-Qaeda in Iraq that later became ISIS. Can I, can I just interject yeah. for people who may not get the reference because they're uh, like younger than me? In, in El Salvador, we, uh, decades ago, supported death squads that did horrible things. And my point was, look, if we considered El Salvador a threatening place for uh, uh, our our enemy, the Soviet Union, to wind up establishing a presence. I mean, imagine what na- next door Iraq seems like Iran as a place for America to establish a presence. So that's that reference. Sorry, okay, go on. But I'm, I, I guess what I would say is that, you know, those, those Shia death squads and, you know, there are many kind of scandals that happened during the Iraq war. We all know about Abu Ghraib. One of those scandals was that the U.S., had worked in the new Iraqi interior ministry with some of these death squads that were basically created by Soleimani. And the things that these groups did, uh, blood curdling and the differences that the, you know, the U S you know, I think was chastened by it. And eventually we saw in 2007, there was a change in policy and they went after some of these autonomous groups, but that was in many ways the design. And then to go to Syria, I mean, we, I think there's a sort of shorthand version of this that, you know, well, Soleimani was fighting ISIS in Syria. And some of that is in fact true is fighting ISIS in Iraq as well. But you know, what also Soleimani was doing was he was fighting the, um, he, he, he was, he was really just kind of aiding and saving Bashar al-Assad against his war against his own civilians. And if you go to the kind of tactics, and it's not that long ago, and the things that they were doing, and we're talking about siege tactics in major cities in Syria that were enabled by the forces that Soleimani had created, and this was many, much, very way, many ways part of his design, it's very difficult to just sort of gloss over that. I mean, we've talked about this before. It's not just the killing of innocents. It's the mass starvation and it's the manner in which these, this territory was won, um, which is again, not something the United States has done since World War II. I can't help but mentioning our economic blockade of various places. uh, What's that? Including Venezuela, where there truly is a dire situation because of the, there's Venezuela because of because of their mismanaged economy, a kind of economic siege or or Gaza, for that matter, which is Israel and not us. We're we're talking about a physical siege, Bob. We're talking about literally making sure that no humanitarian supplies come in whatsoever. And we know that, you know, in this process, we saw this, you know, play out at the end of 2016. I mean, we know that Russian jets, you know, fired on these. Yeah, but, yeah, but it sounds like you're saying are, inflicting suffering and possibly starvation on civilian populations starvation. via blockade. We know that that's what they were doing. Via blockade is well, this the only other moral tactic. And I'm just saying we do it. I'm just saying we do it. Well, we don't 
ever people allow. have died in iran stop. because of our sanctions for lack of medical care that's been pretty well documented well, we've killed there are medical exemptions to the sanctions and they go back sometime and Second it's of been all, shown that they don't do everything you'd hope they there do isn't, but anyway there isn't starvation right now in iran not starvation and third of all the you know the issue of 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 again there are medical exemptions that could could it be easier should there be rules to make it easier for some banks to like underwrite certain medicine shipments i am all for that but it is not there is a deliberate it's not a deliberate part of the u.s policy without regard and it's two very different things when you surround a city with a with an army and then you basically sort of stay there and you let them starve yeah that's been something that's been done throughout human history but at least in the 20th century and the 21st century now uh it's it's still it's something that really does shock the conscience. Okay. And keep in mind, also, he intervenes after we know, and then he and Assad continues to use chemical weapons against his own civilians. So well, you can, me, sometimes it's glossed over. He's fighting ISIS, but he's not just fighting ISIS. He's 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 oh he's sure he's not just fighting ISIS. No, no, obviously, yeah. I mean, obviously, they wanted to support the Syrian regime. Again, Syria is the only country that had defended them, uh, and and. As the U.S. has been repeatedly in history, they, they were willing to uh, – I'm sure they weren't uh, subjecting the leader they were supporting to some, some kind of uh, tight moral scrutiny uh, when they thought that he could be useful or even vital to their national security. There's no doubt it wasn't just about fighting ISIS. I don't know anybody who has claimed that, um, but they, they were um, supporting Syria. And let me just say – do the standard disclaimer – Assad – you know, brutal authoritarian did cruel, horrible things. I don't personally think he's in a different moral category from a couple of uh, authoritarians we support in the region. I think Sisi has shown that he would kill just as many civilians as Assad killed if pressed. I don't think there's any doubt about that and so on. But I will say that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the whole business of he killed his own people. Well, it was a civil war in a civil war. And again, he's brutal, horrible, uh, not the guy I would root for. But in a civil war, that's always what happens. Both sides are killing their own I don't, people. I, I disagree. I, I think that it's it's not a civil war where both sides are, are equal, even though over time— No, I didn't time, say they we were know, equal. I, I would just say, say that— Over time, we know that jihadists took over the opposition to Assad, mm-hmm. and that obviously posed its own sort of— massive problems in terms of the U.S. because the U.S. did have to go after the Islamic State. But the, mm. my point is that when it started, they were inspired by the kind of democratic revolutions throughout the Middle East and the rest they of the were. Arab world. And mm-hmm. and the response was um, suppression. Uh, horrendous suppression. And it, mm-hmm. and it got worse and worse and worse to the point where I don't think that much was done necessarily at first, but once I think that we're starting to be evidence of the use of chemical weapons, which is an important um, kind of, I think it's important that we we have a prohibition against that, that there are going to be consequences if you use those chemical weapons. It is Russia and Iran that's, that rushed to save uh, the person who used that. So, I mean, of course, I, again, Saddam Hussein was using chemical weapons when we were supporting yes. him in the Iraq-Iran war. We knew he was using them. So I'm not seeing a huge moral distinction here between well, Iran and I, us. I, but, I think that the, and he was using them, by the way, of, on of a much is a, just a quickly. Thing. We shouldn't have supported him during that. Saddam time. Hussein was using them on a much larger scale. OK. Uh, and, and we were supporting. Now, fine. You can say, well, we shouldn't have been supporting him. OK. But it, 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 once you've made that concession, what I'm saying is I don't see how you can keep putting Iran in this whole other moral universe from us. 
if you have to keep conceding that we do the same things they do? Well, it's I, 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 I really think that the moral universe question is not the right one. I think that it's fair to say that Iran is not interested in is, is, a, is a revisionist power in the Middle East that has sought to expand its influence. And um, I mean, we know, I mean, in Yemen, uh, they have they, they were their their assistance to the Houthi rebels is responsible for toppling a U.N. recognized government, a crappy U.N. recognized government, but a U.N. recognized government nonetheless. And. In that respect, um, they're interested in remaking the Middle East and being kind of the, the great regional power. And there are a number of American allies who don't want that. And that's why it's, that's, that's the, the sort of hard nuts and bolts of it. I mean, if you want to argue about, I, I, I think that there may be some people who would come on the show or who would make the point that everything America ever did is wonderful and terrific. And I just have read too much history to make that argument. So I, I don't concede everything you've said in this respect, but I certainly concede a lot of it. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, United States used Agent Orange in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we can go through the list of a lot of terrible things the United States has done prosecuting this war. I do not think that, um, that means that the United States is the sort of equivalent of Iran. I think America is a superpower and a global power in a way that Iran isn't. And America has an interest. In, I hope it has an interest at some point in kind of restoring a rules-based system. And Iran has an interest in, I think, disrupting that rules-based system. And so in that respect, I mean, and, and, and not to mention the fact that Iran has, you know, never, I think, moderated its hostility to the United States. And I should add, it wants to destroy the state of Israel. Its leaders say that all the time. So you can uh, understand say- why Israel would have a problem with the well, transport they say of they heavy weapons. To- they say they want to destroy the regime. I don't think they say they want to wipe out the people. I personally, I mean, if you I think they want to destroy the people, I think they, I, they, I think they, they said the that. Who, who is who is I think they want to destroy Serious the question. idea that there's a Jewish state. Period. Like I think that. Well, they, they want to. They want to. They want it not to be a Zionist country. Right. That's, so they don't want and, Israel and, to be and, a Jewish state. And uh, various people I know want. Uh, Saudi Arabia not to be an Islamist country, you know, and in that sense, be an ethnically based state. That's not the same as saying they want to kill all Saudi Arabians. Uh, but in any event, I, well, there's also, they, okay. I mean, we can quibble about it. I, yeah, I think can. that the but, fact but, combined, I, the, the combined last, with that and the fact that they've supported terror against Jewish civilians over the, the years, the, the last, you could understand why the Israelis, and by the way, this is not a, yeah, a just yeah, a Netanyahu I, position in Israel. It's a, it's a consensus it's, view in it's Israel. Absolutely widespread, um, yes. in Israel. And it's not, I don't think it's a crazy view from Israel's point of view, at least, um, I don't think it's crazier than the the sense of threat that I personally think Iran feels and you seem not to think. I I, I, I view them both as exaggerating the sense of threat. Um, but uh, but uh, I, I, I take it that in both cases, there's a genuine sense of threat. I would like to diffuse the sense of threat if I could on both sides. One thing, well, the last thing I'd say about the, the death to Israel, death to America thing is, in trying to assess whether, you know, what, what, what does that actually mean in concrete terms about what Iran actually wants to do? You got to remember, these are very valuable talking points from their point of view. Remember, Iran is struggling for the allegiance. Uh, it's a Shia country struggling for the allegiance of Muslims in a mostly Sunni area. And one way it no doubt thinks it can get some allegiance is mm-hmm. to say death to Israel. So it's definitely a valuable talking point from their point of view. What it means, uh, I don't know. But but I mean, think about this though. If that is the 
aim, the win a soft power sort of war. And I think you're right that that is sort of a strategy on their part. They call themselves the axis of resistance and so forth. At this moment, not only in the Sunni Arab world, Soleimani, Iran is despised because it's the inescapable horrors of Syria, which are laid at the Iranian interventions. And they're responsible for that. But I think that an element of the protests within Iran stem from a sense of shame that Iran is responsible for the killing of so many innocents. That has been my reporting and talking to people who've been involved in those protests. And I think that that in some ways there is a parallel, although I would not, I'm very, um, wary of making too many parallels between Iran and the United States, a very different cultures, different experience. But there is a kind of parallel, if you think about it, the anti-war movement that rises after during Vietnam is an anti-war movement that is really driven by a sense of shame. And I think that there are a lot of Iranians who have a sense of shame at the kind of war that uh, Soleimani has waged. So yes, I do think that there's probably a segment of the Iranian population that thinks it's all terrific. But I also think that there are a number of Iranians who are, you know, to borrow a phrase of the left, they're saying not in our name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's move on um, to that, to to think, to talking about um, kind of the the lay of the land in opinion of of opinion within Iran and what that might suggest about regime change. I just want to ask one final question. I promise Mm -hmm. not to reply to the answer. I'll give you the last word. <laughs> this is going to be hard, I can tell, but I'm going to try mm. to exercise the restraint. Um, what exactly is the kind of moral difference? I mean, if you put yourself, imagine you're just an anthropologist from Mars, you come down and you have no allegiances, you don't have a dog in any of these fights, this country's fighting, this country, blah, blah, blah. What exactly is the difference between what we did in Afghanistan uh, starting uh, very late uh, 70s, early 80s, um, in arming and organizing proxy forces that fought against a Soviet army occupying Afghanistan. And by the way, it was occupying it via something that was much less of a kind of violent invasion than our occupation of Iraq. But in any event, we, we supported these jihadists who did some terrible things. And they, 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 uh, um, but what exactly is the difference? And, and by the way, Afghanistan's a hell of a lot farther from us than Iraq is from Iran. But what exactly is the difference between us arming those proxies and supporting them and whatever um, support? Oh, that was was that an animal that flashed across? That was, your uh, yeah, that was that was Nas Nasman, a tearing at paw. Okay, uh, I only caught the, the tail end, so to speak. Yes. Um, the um, uh, because I was looking away in mid soliloquy. Uh, and I was going to end the soliloquy by saying, um, well, you, you take you take the point. I mean, I mean, the one asterisk I'll add is I, I just want to insert. Well, I, do, I mean, I can answer your question about the difference uh, but, but between quickly, Afghanistan. I, I, I think in, in in all such cases, I would emphasize that I, I I think sometimes it's harder than we imagine to be sure uh, what it is that proxies are doing at the behest or command of the you know, presumed puppet master and what things they're doing on their own. Because always in these cases, whether it's uh, Shia in Iraq or um, jihadists in Afghanistan, the reason they're cooperating, the reason they're being proxies, because they have their own agenda and they have their own motivations. I think it's harder than we might imagine um, to always assume that there's this command and control structure such that we can we can attribute everything they do 
to the, the, the power that is supporting them. Anyway, you take the question. I'm really going to try to well, shut up. Well, there's a lot there, you. but I would just I go know. back and say that, um, I mean, not only was there a UN Security Council resolution that allowed for the U.S. to be in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein, but eventually the Iraqi elected parliament uh, and had a status of forces agreement with the United States, and Obama after that status of forces agreement expired, withdrew troops, and then the Iraqi government invited the United States back after the rise of ISIS. Um, that's totally different than what the Soviet occupation, after, you know, it sent its Spesnaz people in to assassinate this president they didn't like, put in a new group, and proceeded to use typical kind of awful Soviet tactics to, you know, make war on their populations. Uh, and various groups. They looked originally to the Pakistanis for help. The Pakistanis looked to the CIA. Um, and you ended up supporting Mujahideen, which were jihadists and sort of the arguably grandfathers and fathers of the Taliban. Um, so I know the left likes to sort of say, oh, so we created the Taliban, the people who gave us 9-11. And, uh, I, there is, there, there were other commanders, by the way, who ended up breaking off from that. Um, uh, that we also supported in that in this sort of anti-Soviet thing. And f- furthermore, there there were efforts to try to reach out to the Iranians in the first years of the Iraq War um, to say, hey, this is what our plan is. We want to support you know democratic elections in Iraq, and the, these are the Shia parties. They were winning. Um, the, the Iranians sort of were part of the weird process that happens after their elections where there's several months and they figure out who the prime minister is going to be and everything like that. Uh, I just think it's in, to- in some ways entirely different. And the other thing I would just say is that there is not evidence, although I could go back and I'm happy to be wrong, but I don't think there's evidence that the Mujahideen that were supported in the 1980s by the CIA uh, were engaged in the kind of widespread ethnic cleansing that the Shia militias that the Iranians supported were doing as well. So there wasn't like an effort to expand a Pashtun influence in this sense. It, it's a, Iran and Afghanistan are very different countries in a lot of ways. Um, but I just think that those are important distinctions. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know the, the okay. details in either case. And in keeping with my vow not to uh, issue a reply per se, um, I won't issue one, I'll just bracket uh my repetition that we you can't always attribute everything so-called proxies do to their supporters. And, and the other thing so, is, is, is if we yes. had time, if we had time, I would, I would get into a little bit more the, the process by which the quote democratically elected uh, uh, post-invasion government of Iraq was created. I, I, you know, you might argue that we, we did a certain amount of shaping of, of the, the outcome of things there, but that, that I, we should, we should move well, on. I, would just, I, I always point this out, though, that, yes, of course, there was shaping after there was, yeah. nothing, there, there was a vacuum. You had to create this coalition provisional authority. There was a number of things that you were sort of starting with ground zero. Mm-hmm. There was the big debathification order. All of that, of course, America is influential. But at the end of the day, it supports a system of successive elections where Political parties that are that you know were, mm. were were not copacetic or not by any means puppets of the United States ended up winning, mm-hmm. and this is why I, I I think I'm in the minority among you know journalists and analysts and pundits right now. But I don't necessarily think that you're going to see 
the next Iraqi government, as I think we both know, Abdel Mahdi as a caretaker, he had formally resigned in the face of these significant protests before all of this happened, um, that they would necessarily ask the United States to leave because I think most, a lot of Iraqis and a lot of Iraqis sort of elites, uh, don't want to be wholly dependent on Iran for their future. They, okay. they like okay, the but idea. the parliament did already vote that we should leave, right? Well, and you, they, you, I, I would say Kurdish we should do it. Parties, legislators were, were, were not there. It was yeah, a but it didn't matter vote. because it was a majority of the entire parliament that voted yes. But they could have showed up and voted no. They still would have lost. So well, the parliament they, has they, voted they, that we should leave. And do you think since we respect democratic values in Iraq, we should leave? It was a non-binding resolution. There's another. There's more of a process to it, and the prime minister that ends up. Being, my view is, if they end up voting, and that's what they want, that they they want, sure. What I'm saying is, I think that we'll see in a new government as things tamp down, you'll see kind of what we have is as a small U.S. forces that are not in in the cities, that are not doing any kind of patrols or anything like that, and that I think that there is. <laughs> I mean, we'll see. I, I, I would suspect that you will not. No, they're see not the doing US. any patrols. They did recently kill a high ranking Iraqi military commander. They've killed a number of Iraqi militia members. Uh, that's what they're doing in Iraq lately. I can well, see why, why Iraqis would be kind of pissed I, off, I, or at least I, some large number of them. I, you, you cannot deny what I'm saying is that the prime minister we know had already resigned as a caretaker position. There's going to be a new prime minister and we know that the vote was non-binding and I'm just what I'm saying is that I think once things okay. calm down, they will realize that it's not great to only have one foreign power in the country. And that would be wrong. OK. One reason apparently they're going to think it's not great is because it has been reported that we threatened them and said that if they kick our troops out, we are going to use our uh, central role in the global financial system. Now that, Trump totally. said that explicitly. Right. Now, yeah. are you do you favor that? Or are you against that? That kind I, of, I don't, I think that that's unnecessary. I think it's bluster. A are you, a, are you, but I, I you, would not, I don't think he should do that. And, and okay. while we're at it, I don't think he should bomb cultural sites, which he backed away Fine. from. But apparently we okay. are doing that. And it was reported before he said it. I mean, we are actually sending the message to Iraq. We are going to put the screws on you financially because we control an important nexus in the, in the world financial system. If you kick our troops out. And well, I mean, I, I, I'm not entirely sure that that's real. I think the president said it. And I think it's some, it's one of these things that the president says a lot of outrageous things. And but it's not I just that, that he said it. It was reported that the message had been sent through other channels, hasn't it? Didn't the I'm Wall Street sure Journal the report pre- that? I mean, I, I have, I gotta go back, but I'm sure mm-hmm. the president has sort of said he's in a, in a fit of peak, you know, said all these things. I'm not entirely sure that that's, I mean, I hope that that's not the policy. If you're asking me what I think the policy should be, I think the United States should wait, sort of let things calm down, sort of see where they are. And I think you would find that there is more of, of Iraqis, I think, have an interest in making sure, in, in seeing that there's a kind of uh, de-escalated balance between Iran and Iraq in their country. And I mean, again, I think that the, the recent sequence, I mean, you have those four time, three timelines in the newsletter about looking at, you know, why Iran might do what it's doing. But I have to say that, um, you know, I think Trump did show the restraint in June when he didn't respond to downing of the drone. And then we saw the attack on the Saudi oil fields. And then we've seen these stepped up attacks against U.S. positions on, I might add, Iraqi bases. So Iran fired an Iraqi base as well. Fortunately, no one was killed. 
And um, well, Iranian, what you would call Iranian proxies. We don't know for sure where uh, exactly, but 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 the presumption is it was Iran-supported Iraqi militias who fired that rocket, right? Well, okay. So we're talking. Okay, let me say I was talking about the Iranian response to Soleimani. Oh, the, I'm sorry. Bali, I, I got mixed then, up. No, oh, Iran right. definitely wanted right. to send the, the Iranian supported yeah. Iraqi militias. Yeah, yeah. Fired on a position, an American died. That was always the red line that yep. Trump had said explicitly and sent through many, many emissaries, including Japanese Prime Minister Abe, that, you know, no American's blood should be spilled. It was. And I think that the response was, all right, well, you know, we have not responded militarily. We are going to respond military. And as you point out, it was first the Qatab Hezbollah bases in Iraq and Syria where that were hit. Mm-hmm. Then there was this overrun. It wasn't a protest. It was an overrun of the U.S. embassy in Baghdad where they were effectively held hostage for 24 it was a, hours. It was a controlled overrun. I mean, they didn't kill anybody and they withdrew. Uh, they were and clearly they sending a message. the reception room and it yep. was a very clearly scary sending situation. a message. Violated the perimeter. Yep. Right. And, and all of that stuff. And I think that the response was, all right, well, I'm not going to have a Benghazi on my watch. And so he escalated, I would say, three or four rungs on the ladder. And the idea would be that a sort of a, a jump in escalation is meant to deter. Um, as I wrote, you know, David Wormser and others think have been arguing that this would be a response back when they were sinking or they were they were they were disabling tankers in the Gulf. Um, but I'm saying what Trump until that point, sort of wanted to have a negotiation. He used economic means. Um, and we can talk about the economic sanctions. Um, in fact, we should, because I might surprise you with sort of my thoughts on this. But, um, but he did, but there wasn't a kind of in-kind response. And I think that he chose that option at that point based on, you know, reporting, but also what's been reported and sort of out there as to sort of saying, all right, enough is enough. And this is what's going to happen. And then Soleimani kind of, I mean, arrogantly, uh, given the fact that he, you know, was involved in planning this escalation, according to what almost everybody was saying. I, we, again, I'm not co-signing for this idea that he was in the p- plotting attacks on four embassies or something like that, which has not been confirmed. And no, and, and just briefly, do you agree that the, the this administration claimed that we have evidence of a quote imminent? attack and yet we don't know when or where it was going to be well if you don't know when it was going to be are you sure imminent is worth i mean do you agree that that whole thing kind of reeks of dishonesty um i I don't know i i would read the um the the really good new york times tiktok i think it was the new york times magazine that they came out a couple days ago um and then they have sort of some stuff that i hadn't seen before from gina haspel the cia director and I think you saw all of the top people, all the, the his national security cabinet support this option. And I thought it was particularly significant that Haspel did. And then she said that she thought that there were kind of plans to continue to escalate inside of Iraq. And I'm sure there were plans. I'm sure there were contingency plans. Is, but I think at that point. You know, I mean, we can argue and we can quibble uh, about whether I'm it was sure they, imminent they, or not. But it was sort of like at this point, there was an idea that Soleimani was there to, uh, you know, plan this out right. or whatever okay. the next step would be to sort of argue to, to give his 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 orders to the to Mohandas and other uh, well, militia leaders to 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 go after more Americans. And that's why I think they did it. And they well, said, the, the we're going to escalate. We're going to escalate three or four rungs now. And then so far. The message after the missile attack from Iran last week was 
you know, and this has been reported through the Swiss, was that's the escalation for now. Now, of course, there there probably are plans to do something on uh, in the gray zone in this uh, through other proxies. I wouldn't, you know, I would I wouldn't be surprised if we saw uh, more of that. But at least for now, the threat of it turning into a hot war has not happened, and. You know, I think that uh, deterrence in this case appears to have worked for now. I mean, that's a yeah. I mean, just quickly, uh, of course, the Iraqi prime minister said Soleimani was there to, among other things, talk about a uh, rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which would have been a nice thing. In any event, I'm sure there were I plans. Don't that, but okay. I'm sure there were okay. I'm sure there were plans, at least in the sense of contingency uh, plans. Any responsible military commander, as Soleimani was, who is engaged in what he thinks is a kind of a carefully calibrated tit for tit, exchange, tit for tat, exchange for signals and so on, um, is going to have plans about what he will do if the U.S. does that. And to me, it sounds entirely plausible, given the fact that they say, we don't know when, we don't know where, that they took uh, chatter about contingency plans as something other than chatter about mere contingency plans. I haven't seen anything that would disabuse me of that notion yet. Um but uh, in any event, of the various places we could go, and I forget where we were going when we went to where we, we just um, got. But, well, let's just quickly, let, let's let's say right here, because there is this quote in the Wormser piece. Mm. And, I mean, the, the Wormser analysis is interesting uh, because you could take it as lending a kind of real coherence to what Trump did. What Trump seems to have done is um, – be a very unclear and unreliable signaler, right? It's like you attack the, the, you know, refineries, you, you shoot down a drone. He does little, if anything, suddenly in response to, uh, protests, you know, uh, admittedly aggressive protests. Uh, Can we say I, I, the idea that it was protest is, okay, is fine. whatever misleading. you want to call it. We know what we know. The An fact. overrun of the U.S. Okay. embassy where that where everybody was basically a hostage overrun for and withdrawal from parts of a very vast U.S. embassy uh, that is itself in response to Trump killing 25 people. OK, and it kills no people. And Trump responds by doing this uh, like mind blowing thing, uh, which is precedent setting um, in terms of killing a, uh, a high-ranking military commander, de facto military uh, political figure um, in a foreign country, assassinating one. I think that's totally unlike anything the uh, U.S. has done in, in my life. Um, anyway, I, I, I think you'll, you'll grant that some people could read this as, as Trump being guilty of just erratic signaling. It's like, dude, if you want them to stand down, respond incrementally when they escalate incrementally. That's the way the game is supposed to be played. Now, the Wormser analysis gives you the opportunity to read uh, Trump's uh, seemingly uneven signaling as this genius move to just gaslight Iran, right? Which is what Wormser kind of wants to do. Like, whoa, what the hell kind of universe are we in? It's like we're we're like the rats in the learned helplessness experiments where there's well, no correlation. I don't think that's how like, what the you do as a punishment. That's right? not how deterrence works. I mean, the, the, the deterrence no, is supposed not. to. Deterrence is supposed to be like I'm going to demonstrate that I'm going to do something really awful right. that you value. Right, like and you that's, can that count never, on what I'm going to do ever, in response don't ever to these things on my embassy again. I think that's the the idea. That's deterrence doesn't work the way you said. It. Well, incremental for incremental, it works with you know escalation to a point where oh wow, we really crossed a line. We better not do that again. So in that respect, I think it works within the context oh. of coherence. The problem yep. is, is that Iran, because it doesn't 
exercise at statecraft in a traditional way has a lot of op- would, has shown no compunction in its history for attacking. It, does it really? Actually, that's what I don't see. What's so non-traditional? I mean, it's funny. There's a line on, from it, it, Wormser. There's a line from your piece about Wormser. Uh, well, it's a quote from Wormser. Iran yeah. has always been careful to execute its ambitions and aggressive aims incrementally to avoid Western reactions, which depart from the expected. Well, that's the way states are supposed to uh, do. Well, I, play in I general. By, what, that's what, what we I call a that. rational actor. And yet what? the whole premise of the campaign against Iran is that they're so irrational that if they had a nuclear weapon, uh, you know, they would they would use it to commit national suicide, knowing right. that the country would be destroyed. Right. On the one hand, we're assuming that they are these these uh, religiously fervent rogue actors who just can't be trusted. On the other hand, Worms himself says these guys are very rational actors. Let's no. make them let let's 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 convince them they're in a right. non-rational universe. That's okay, what he seems all, to be saying. Let, let's dissect. When I when I say they do not act like a normal state, what I mean is that, that they have largely pursued their goals through supporting terrorist groups that do things like car bombings, suicide bombings, etc. And that goes back to the 1980s. So that's A. So that's Other nations point. in the region don't do that, you're saying? Israel doesn't do that? Saudi Arabia doesn't well, do Saudi that, you're Israel saying? Israel doesn't support foreign terrorist organizations. That's the, Sure, that's they a, do. They supported a, the MEK when they assassinated the no, nuclear scientists that, in Iran. That, that, uh, Israel has had a kind of weird shadowy relationship with the MEK in terms of trying to get information about Iran's nuclear program. Some of you it don't think Israel was, was connected to those assassinations at all? Israel conducted assassinations in Iran against well, who nuclear, killed scientists, those nuclear but scientists, but not, not through the MEK. Oh, okay. Well, they think. committed the terrorism directly then. Well, terrorism. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I think well, were, if you're that, like that a nuclear scientist to to at a against... university in Iran, if you're the right. wife of a nuclear we, scientist that gets offed, that, I think you're going to call it terrorism. Okay. I would say that there is a difference between uh, that world of where Israel is conducting these kinds of assassinations against nuclear scientists and other kinds of disruption of their nuclear program with, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Hezbollah in Lebanon that, you know, destroys embassies and does car bombings and things like that. And we can, we, there's a difference between, okay, but, but what's the difference that have that, that, that sort of make their name by deliberately targeting just lots of civilians. Okay, and then just, somebody just who's a one... nuclear scientist in a, in a weapons program that is aimed at, you know, the furious rail. Well, well actually at, at the point, it's, it's totally unclear that at this point, there are good grounds for calling it a weapons program. Although okay. in the past, oh, Iran had I been pursuing a weapon, okay. but that aside, it's like Israel has nuclear weapons. Sure. Okay. So like they clearly don't have some kind of moral stance against nations possessing them. Their position is we get to have them and not join the nonproliferation treaty, whereas any other nation that might think about uh, acquiring them and leaving the treaty, not being part of the treaty. We get to assassinate people in their country to prevent that from happening. No, 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 no. Israel does not have a global non-proliferation program of assassinating nuclear scientists in Pakistan no, I'm or just North saying, Korea. How is this one thing only not in Iran. And the reason that they are in Iran is because from the very get-go since 1979, its leaders have been unequivocal in saying they want to destroy Israel. And you can, I mean, I, I don't see how, that, and has and have has shed Jewish blood in pursuit of opposing Israel. That is, that's that's why if you if you if you declare your policy is 
I want to destroy Israel and you pursue a nuclear weapon, then we, we yes, talked that's about what's the, me- the actual meaning of that. But well, I, that, that's a, I mean, I, I, I just think I do not understand that quibble. I think it's it's pretty clear what they mean. Well, there's, a, there's a pretty big difference between wiping out the people who live in Israel and saying you want regime change. I mean, we favor regime change in lots of places. It's and not we don't, regime change. They're no, it means they, the they don't state. want a Zionist regime. I'm not embracing okay, but, that, by the way. I'm not, if, I'm, not, I'm not embracing their position. I'm just saying it's far well, from clear I think to me like that they're, they're doing a little bit of a backpedaling for them and saying, well, you know, you have to look at it this way and they don't actually mean this. And what I'm saying is that when you when you have the, this or when a country that sponsors the attack on the Jewish Amias Cultural Center in Buenos Aires and, uh, you know, supports organizations that have gone out of their way to try to just kill Jewish civilians in the name of fighting Israel, then I think you just say, all right, these are people that are in, at least motivated to a certain extent by a lust for Jewish blood. Period. Okay, now, look, it doesn't mean that, that, that I lust, would agree with you. Literally a lust for Jewish blood. That's that it. That does not mean that's that, that they would I mean, if, if they had embrace that, mutual think- assured destruction and launch a nuclear attack against a nuclear mm-hmm. armed country. I'm not arguing that, but I, even if they didn't do that and they just threatened to do so, that itself would be a kind of disaster for Israel because, you know, that they would say well, we might be crazy enough to do it. And I think of all, all the kind of add on effects and, and then it would also obviously kind of give them a bit of a free hand to, to okay. further do more kind of conventional aggression, uh, that we're seeing as, you know, giving advanced weapons to Hezbollah and Syria and Lebanon that can hit Israeli cities is something that I think is a serious security threat for, for Israel as well as, you know, our other allies in the region. So, okay. Let me just say two quick things. Uh, sure. Uh, one that'll, uh, maybe get me into more trouble and one I hope will get me into less. But, uh, as for the, uh, synagogue bombing in Argentina, obviously one of the most horrible terrorist acts ever. Um, I think that what we actually know for sure about Iranian complicity is that we have, uh, uh confidence that Hezbollah, uh, which is in, you know, uh, in some cases an Iranian proxy did it. We have reason to believe that it was done, uh, in retaliation for an assassination of a Hezbollah figure by Israel. Uh, I don't think we have, uh, certain evidence, uh, certainly not that it was ordered by Iran. I don't think we even have completely solid evidence that Iran okayed it, although one might surmise that Hezbollah would check in with him. But I, I, A, I think that's the state of our actual knowledge. Well, Correct that's not true. First of all, first of all, there have been Argentine prosecutors that have Name yeah. senior Iranian figures. They have named the, them, yes. the or, or the Argentine investigator that was kind of doing this work was actually killed a few years ago. Um, I, so I I, yeah. I I I don't think That's you can. I think I think we can. The, we have the, to okay, the, say the that other Iran thing, is culpable for something like that. Okay. The other thing is just that um, when I question whether what Iran is saying about. Um, Israel means they actually want to, to wipe out the people or even, you know, have a war and bomb a bunch of people. Um, I, I, I actually don't, I'm not, an, I'm not, I, I, this is, I'm not a scholar of this. It could be that people can show me things that would convince me. I'm just asking the question. Do we know based on what they've said that what they explicitly advocate is more than an opposition to Zionism? And I'm not even embracing that. I'm just, at, I'm just saying there's a huge distinction between somebody saying they want a non-Zionist regime in Israel and somebody saying they want to kill everybody in Israel. The two are very often conflated in our rhetoric, and not mine, but in many people's. And I just, I, I just encourage people who have evidence uh, that's relevant to this 
to bring it to my attention if they think my my uh, my current my, state my of agnosticism that is, is that, they, that Iran has a long history of funding, training, directing groups and militias that had that killed Jewish civilians. So that I think is an important bit of context for the um, rhetoric of their leaders, which express a desire to end the state of Israel. So okay, so um. Let's. There's a couple of things I'd like to touch on. Well, one I think we could, we could do quickly is just um, don't you you know whatever your exact take on the demonstrations, um, the two phases of demonstration. You know, large, ardent pro-Sulaimani demonstration followed by uh, not so large demonstrations against the government. On the other hand, people might be afraid to march in those demonstrations, and they weren't afraid to march in the pro-Sulamani demonstrations, so we we don't know. But don't they together suggest, you know, and certainly I'm sure there could be some people who were in both. There could be. I'm sure there were significant numbers, but it's probably safe to say there are a large number of people who would choose to participate in one, not the other. Doesn't that suggest that hopes for some kind of smooth, peaceful, you know, internally induced uh, uh, and perhaps externally fomented regime change, hopes that that could go smoothly or lead to a happy outcome anytime soon may be simplistic. In other words, you know, we like to think that uh, the Iraqi people want this, the Iranian people want this, and, and people who support regime change say the Iranian people want regime change. It's almost always much more complicated than that. You have oh, you have sure. lots of, of sentiment on both sides. You have powerful actors on both sides. So you often wind up with uh, an enduring civil war rather than some kind of peaceful regime change. Don't, don't you think there's good reason to believe that? Uh, well, no, because the opposition to the regime has been almost entirely nonviolent. There, there are groups, you mentioned the MEK, and there are other groups uh, that have committed terrorism over the years against the regime. And those groups are not welcome in the current sort of you know, loose confederation that's largely leaderless uh, civil society organizations now. We also know that they have an aim, which is easy to understand and I think easy to support. They want a referendum on the Iranian constitution, essentially to eliminate the power of the supreme leader and the notion of Elid Afaki, which is that there should be an unelected clerisy that would approve laws that are supported by the parliament and the legislature. The, uh, the appeal of this particular model has uh, is rooted in Iranian history and its, uh, I guess, first modern constitution. And it is something that seems to have widespread support and has been an idea, by the way, that has been discussed since really the late 1990s with the um, uh, reformist president Khatami uh, and so forth. Now, The difference now, and this is important, is that for a while, let's say from Khatami until, let's, I think, I would say from Khatami to the Green Movement in 2009, there was a belief among most people who wanted to change the system to try this route of reform. The problem was, is that reform was so threatening to the people who had accumulated and amassed power inside of Iran's system that they jailed exiled or killed the leading reformers. To this day, the leaders, the two main political leaders of the Green Movement, um, Musavi and Karabi, remain under house arrest. Uh, Montezari, who was a cleric who supported Khomeini in 79 and then came to say that 
the system was becoming too radical and that there needed to be um, a kind of uh, allowing for, you know, a real democracy and more accountability and there should be more political power invested in the Iranian president was died under, uh, you know, house arrest, basically was silenced and so forth. So these figures who tried to work within the system uh, failed because of of the uh, sort of brittle and uncompromising nature uh, that we have to sort of chalk up to Khamenei and the people around him. Uh, so they have tried this different route, but this route is not a violent insurrection. It's it's a nonviolent movement that I think has been effective and hasn't gone away in part because of the incompetence that always accompanies corruption and autocracy. So mm-hmm. the failure of Iran to have a banking system that doesn't end up losing the pensions of so many Iranians, the failure of Iran to deal with its water crisis, the failure of Iran to uh, take the proceeds uh, that it got after 2016 when it's finally agreed to the nuclear deal and reinvest it really in their country, despite what John Kerry said on one of the Sunday shows, uh, to my surprise. Uh, these things, I think, have just led to a sense where what else do we have to lose at this point? And I think that the way that that movement succeeds is by co-opting the elements of the security services themselves. And we've seen the model before. It doesn't mean it's going to work, but I'm saying that the way that it succeeds is that, you know, the 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 the, the Basiji commander, the Revolutionary Guard commander, will have relatives who are on the other side of those protests. And when he gets an order to fire on the crowds, and we saw that they did fire on the crowds, by the way, November, December, he may pause and say, I can't do that because my cousin is there, my niece is there. Uh, and that is ultimately how these, that's the best way for these dictatorships to fall. Uh, that's the best case scenario. I mean, I would well, say. That, but, well, but it's worked many times. In, in, well, in, and it has not worked many times. I mean, yeah. uh, before I even uh, talk about what happened in Syria, I'd yeah. say that, that you know, the, the good news for your scenario is that Iran is not as brutally repressive as Syria has historically been. Well, it has we're more, seeing a lot of brutality right now, Bob. Well, I mean, right now, but I mean, are, come on. We are seeing but, but it I mean, as we're. They've but, shown but, their teeth. Well, then maybe uh, yeah. Well, then, then, okay, shot well, look, in the look to right. the extent that you want to compare them to the the yeah. the uh, Syrian regime, feel free because I think that suggests that your hopeful scenario is unrealistic. And what happened in Syria is that yes, the protesters had democratic aspirations. They wanted to do it that way. Uh, Initially, yeah. th- there was brutal suppression. In your scenario, there will be brutal suppression in Iran. And what pretty quickly happened was that all of the regional and global regime change supporters, us, European countries, regional powers that didn't like Syria, started arming uh, the, uh, the, 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 that did not what became an insurgency. That's, that's not, that's not what happened. It was happening by 2013, in, at, wasn't it? It, it? But this, but Syria starts in 2011. Well, and, anyway, and, I, I think you'll agree that it could not have been as full blown a civil war with as many deaths and refugees had we and our allies not sent in a whole lot of weapons and created uh, a lot of uh, proxies, including jihadist proxies that we wound up not always being able to control, blah, blah, blah. And that the ending was an unhappy one from even your perspective. That's that's all I'm saying. If you want to say that, look, the Iranian regime is just as brutal as the Syrian regime. Uh, OK, I don't agree. Well, I, I, but then, then it is weapons against their to start fomenting regime yeah. change, if that's true. Well, but what, what I'm talking about is something that, first of all, it's not fomenting. This is something that is driven by Iranians. 
Sure, there were there were there was indigenous no, support but I'm for saying Syria. That the, the Iranians right now are not asking for the United States to invade. I think they're asking for a kind of solidarity, and I think that it's I more don't think many to have Syrians solidarity asking, from Europe. We didn't invade in Syria, but we, frankly, to have solidarity from the American left. We didn't invade um, in Syria, but once things turned violent, it's very hard to keep nations who support regime change from arming the insurrection. Okay, well, I guess I would say that I don't think that. For now, what we're seeing is the movement is asking to be armed, and I think that they are committed to the discipline of nonviolence. And I'd say that there are plenty of examples of how this kind of nonviolence works. We saw the, the, it in I Serbia. Have, in our archives, we have a blogging heads right. of, I think it's Josh Landis talking to a Syrian uh, protester. You know, I think I think the guy is in Syria saying, no, we don't want it to turn violent. We're not going to, you know, it's not going to, don't worry. Well, the yeah, person well, who turned it violent did, was and he Bashar didn't want it to turn violent. Bashar right. al-Assad turned it violent. Right, but you just said that the Iranian regime is exactly comparable to him, or at least well, in terms of level I, of brutality. I, I don't want to say exactly comparable. The Iranian regime has used lots of violence, and they're, they're pretty terrible in their kinds of repression. But what I'm saying is that the movement itself is so far shown um, a real admirable and courageous commitment to the principles of nonviolent resistance. I would argue, it's easy for me to argue uh, from Washington, D.C., that that is the best chance of success. And I tried to sort of lay out how it would work. Um, if it turns into a kind of devolution where you see armed camps, I think it would be far more likely that you would see elements of the current, you know, Iranian leadership turn on each other, as opposed to what we're seeing now, which is um, a, a popular movement that is sort of banded together for now elements from all over strata society. I mean, there's, you know, everything from sort of labor unions to, you know, university professors have joined this kind of movement and it's become much wider than we had sort of seen before. And I do th hope that I don't think it's that hard for now. I mean, you're talking about, Oh my God, I hope it doesn't get to the point where the United States is arming factions in Iran and of course, I'd, I would no, I don't think I'd like to see that either. That's a lot of instability, particularly the country with an advanced, you know, nuclear program if it doesn't have a nuclear weapon yet. But certainly, the United States, Europe, uh, people of conscience should begin to support and to pressure the regime to support this idea of a referendum. What's wrong with that? There's enormous support for it right now. Why can't we make that the centerpiece of our Iran policy? Um. Because right now the centerpiece seems to be killing my ranking Iranians. But right. let's get back to that. So how likely is this to lead to war? The um uh the, the I I think we probably agree that uh Iran's response I was a little surprised that Iran was was happy to say, Okay, we've concluded our response without killing any Americans. I thought at a minimum they had to kill some Americans for maybe uh domestic purposes, but so far as I can tell their their plan is to limit the response that is directly from Iran at a point where because they don't kill any Americans, they probably don't get American retaliation. But uh, in part because their their goal of get, of evicting Americans uh, from Iraq remains, I think we can expect to see proxy attacks of various kinds and sooner or later uh, Americans will get killed. Uh, and I don't know what how Trump will react you you, you, you uh, i mean correct correct me if you disagree so far before we get into what would happen next well the only thing i would say is that before all of this there was unrest 
among Iraqi Shia against Iraqi politicians be, that accuse them of selling the country out to Iran. Mm-hmm. So there is um, in Iraq um, a kind of disgust, as we've seen actually recently also in Lebanon, of um, Iran's uh, kind of arrogance that they feel that they can control our country. Um, there still is a memory among, you know, middle-aged and older Iraqis of the Iran-Iraq war. And I'm not entirely sure. I do think you're right that the Iranians will attempt to um, seek a kind of policy revenge by uh, pressuring uh, their their allies in the uh, Iraqi parliament to really support a binding resolution to kick American forces out. What what I'm saying is that Iraqi politics are in pretty fluid at the moment, and we may see that that effort will fail. They have, by the way, they've tried that before, and it did not work. So that, it may very Wait, well try, be. I'm that sorry, they, they, they've tried what before? They've they've tried to pressure their the political parties that they're close to to try to support kicking American uh, mm-hmm. forces out. Mm-hmm. And I would just note that. Um, Moqtada al-Sadr, who Iraq watchers will remember, was the sort of outlaw cleric Shia. and uh, mm-hmm. one of the bad guys of the 2000s. I mean, he called for the decommissioning of the Shia militias after the Soleimani hit. And that's somebody who you can never accuse of being a pawn of the Americans. Uh, and he's recently been more of a critic of Iran, obviously, right. but I'd say he's an Iraqi exactly. nationalist and has some constituency there. That none of this, I, I don't m- wish to predict. I think you well, may be right. He opposed the Soleimani strike, which, which was. Of course he did. Yeah. And I think every Iraqi is going to, I mean, there were some Iraqis who were celebrating, but many Iraqis are going to oppose it because they don't like the idea of the United States, you know, using their country as well, part of the ground. And you know, killing their people in their country. Okay, I would add, though, that there's also a lot of frustration that the, they, they see, as I think is correct, that Iran was trying to escalate inside of Iraq against the United mm-hmm. States. So there is a, it's a, it's a complicated view. But I'm, I'm just, I guess what I'm saying is that the, notion that a lot of Iraqis would support the idea of kicking the United States out, which would mean that Iraq would really be even more dependent on Iran at that point, is not something that necessarily has mass popularity, yeah. even among the ethnic Shia population, which is the majority there. Yeah, I don't I don't know Iraqi politics okay. well enough to say. I, w- I was just making the, the point that, that Iran's continued desire to, defic- to, to, to evict Americans from Iraq is among the reasons that wouldn't be surprising if Iran continues to, via proxy, strike uh, Americans in various places. Uh, who knows yeah. where? Uh, but certainly uh, Iraq would be a likely place. In any event, my point is just that I don't think this is over. You can imagine it escalating to war. My own view is that, uh, I mean, you, and I'm curious as to what you think that would look like. My own view is that... Um, there will not be American ground troops in Iran. There could be very extensive bombing. Uh, I suspect, you know, if you look at the various players who support a harshly anti-Iran policy on the part of America, ranging from John Bolton to Bibi Netanyahu to Pompeo to whoever, they would all be pretty happy if it got to the point of a bo- of bombing Iran's nuclear reactors, right? Including using bunker uh, busting bombs to uh, to to penetrate. I guess the most I guess the most deeply buried, the one that's very deeply buried, I think is I assume is vulnerable to the bunker busters. I don't know, but but they I think they, at that point at that point 
what yeah four no so i i, I at that point i think the various people who have encouraged uh the policy would would, would be like mission accomplished right pretty much if iran stood down after that leaving that aside it, it's not like it's not like they'd have any particular strategic well i think uh, that i mean listen as i see it the strategic prize is and i've said this kind of for years is is the um is the success of of whatever this of Iran's civil society movement and what we're seeing now? That is the the real solution. And at that point, I think you could probably get enough assurances on the nuclear program that um, you you would need to bomb Iran in that in that case. Um, if there was further escalations, I think that Trump, you know, sort of says, you know, what did he say in his speech last week? Iran will never get a nuclear weapon as long as I'm president. And I think that that is, you know, translation. Uh, I just killed Soleimani. I'm, I would be willing to bomb you and, and yeah. believe it or something like that. So, um, and I don't, you know, Bolton is no longer in the administration and I don't know that his relationship with Trump at this point is, I don't, it's hard to say what it is. I mean, he's saying he might respond to a subpoena in this impeachment trial. Um, so I think that that's, where Trump is, is coming from at this point. And I think that, you know, by the way, that was, you know, I mean, Obama said for his presidency, he would bomb them if, if need be. He, every, every president has sort of left open the possibility because it's important that you the Iranians. All options are on the table. I think. All options are on the table. But the point, the reason that you say that is because you want the Iranians to think that you might actually do it if they cross a line. Um, but I think Trump would prefer. Um, a nuclear deal. And my concern is, is that he would end up kind of he had be a, a lifeline deal. to the regime. Eli, he had a nuclear deal. He abandoned yeah, it. One, he reneged. He started this whole mess. And well, he did it I mean, under the, that's, under that's the pressure of the kinds deal. of I think people I've a, already mentioned. It was a terrible nuclear deal that didn't actually prevent Iran from well, it was certainly it was certainly going to keep them from getting a, it for a little bit. It was certainly going to keep them from getting a weapon during his presidency, even a two-term presidency, and well beyond. And, and well, moreover, yeah, but it also, I mean, again, I mean, like it, it, it gets back to this issue of like if you, you know, we we saw this kind of Soleimani campaign in the region, which the, obviously the deal didn't touch, and that was something that was spooking our allies, and I hmm. think a lot of Americans who look at this stuff. And I think that what, I mean, I think your argument, I think one of the things that's sort of implicit in your argument when you get into this stuff is, why are we even there? What is yeah. it to us? Yeah. And I think that's, and that's the really fundamental question. Why Claire, are we in the, the Middle answer? East? What's the what, answer? What vital American interest does Iran actually threaten? Well, I'm, in my view, I think the United States is the kind of, or at least, I mean, I think we might be in a transition right now, but it's historically, at least in the, in the Cold War period, had been a kind of stabilizing power in the Middle East and that would protected the kind of status quo. Wait, the United States stabilizing in the Middle East since 2003, well, you'd call it stabilizing? Yeah. Really? So well, like I think that we like invaded, the, fear, the fear that America we, we would, invaded Iraq. We did regime creating ISIS. We did re, regime change in Libya. We 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 sent arms into Syria, exacerbating a civil war, creating. Uh, well, I mean, listen, uh, I, I, I don't want to relitigate Iraq, to, to, but to my Brexit point is that America. My, I, mean, I don't want to relitigate Iraq. My my only point no, is, is that America is was the predominant power in the Middle East that uh, 
a network of allies relied on in many ways for its security from Saudi Arabia to Israel uh, to Egypt, et cetera, right, et cetera. But, but I'm I mean, you're not going to argue with that. I'm, okay? a, I'm, a, I'm asking about America's interests. You responded that we'd been stabilizing, which, first of all, you'd have to show me that uh, America's I mean, I'd like a stable Middle East. Uh, but it, it's not obviously clear that America desperately needs one. But I'd like one. Okay, it strikes but me as I, I, ludicrous to say I think our that your question, your question is a more profound, given the fact that America uh, doesn't need and maybe doesn't want oil. Like oil, the price of oil has always been the sort of key national interest to keep it stable um, and to make sure that there aren't disruptions of oil flows, essentially to East Asia, which is the one of the the, the, the big stuff. And so, you know, I mean, there's a there is a view. I think it's probably the Tucker Carlson view at this point um, that, well, you know, we don't really need the oil at this point. So why? What are we doing there? And what I would say is that, you know, um, if if the United States establishes deterrence with our rivals in such a way and that our allies believe that we are capable of protecting uh their security, then that means that there's less of a chance that you would have uh, a wider conflagration. The problem is, is that when, if the United States were to leave and just get out of the Middle East, uh, it's none of our business. We don't make anything right anyway. Then that the, the result would not be stability. The result would be an even more ferocious war. I think you would see Israel and Saudi Arabia against Iran, and it would be throughout the region, potentially could spill over to other parts of the world. And so... I'm just saying, careful what you wish for there. But I do think it's a more serious question in 2020 than I would have said to, in, in 2000 or 1995. I think that what are we doing in the Middle East? It used to be answered with, well, the oil. And now, and then for a while it was because of terrorism. And now it's like, all right, I mean, it's, it's worth it asking the question at this point. So far, but that's really what you're be, interested in, right? You yeah. just think America should be out of the Middle East. Um, no, I'm not. I'm just throwing it out there to to get a, a clear version of your uh, position. I I am in favor of, of an America very engaged in world affairs. Uh, j- uh, certainly in the in in the sense of nurturing a lot of uh, things it's not nurturing now in the realm of arms control, various kinds of regional and global governance, uh, supporting uh, you know uh, robust economic exchange among nations, which I think is a good thing. Is passed all kinds of ways and certainly aggressive, active diplomacy, all of that. I'm just not in favor of continuing to meddle in the affairs of sovereign nations, subjecting them to uh, strangling economic sanctions, reneging on the diplomatic deals we do, invading them. I'm just not in favor of that stuff, especially when it's manifestly destabilizing. I mean, you said that, well, one one legit goal would be to preserve the flow of oil. Well, if you really wanted to do that, you certainly wouldn't have gotten out of the, the, Iran, the uh, Iran deal and subjected them to sanctions because that created the only recent threat to the flow of oil. That, that, that was destabilizing. Well, okay, but you have to understand that the re the the, mo- the reason that was motivated to get out of the Iran deal was a, I mean, the deal was a mirage. It was going the key important limits on enrichment were going to expire, mm-hmm. leaving Iran with essentially a legalized I, 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 nuclear program. But more important than that, Iran was you know sort of after being led into the world economy again was using its proceeds to wage this expansionist war throughout the region, which. I don't think was good for anyone. So that is my view. My view is that the Iranians were 
taking advantage of this interregnum to kind of uh, double down on their proxy and conventional war, hybrid war in the region. And that is the reason why that we, we're in the state of this conflict. Your view is that that was fine. It was understandable, right? I mean, your view is, mm-hmm. oh, well, you can see why they would be defensive, so we should just let them. But I, I, I mean, I just I, think I wouldn't say it's fine, but I would say it is motivated by a perception of defense. I mean, you call it expansionist for them to have uh, troops and or proxies in Syria uh, with the permission of the Syrian regime, which, however brutal, is the governing regime, whereas w- w- for Israel to launch regular attacks into Syria and kill Iranians yeah. and Iranian proxies, which it does all the time, without the permission of the Syrian government, to you, that's not expansionist. Now, I, I accept that Israel actually views that as defensive. I'm just saying that from an objective perspective, it's far from clear that w- that, that it's the Iranian thing that's expansionist and the Israeli thing that's not. I'm willing to accept that in both cases, a significant part of the motivation is actually defensive. If in a diluted way in, or, or, or in a, in an, in, in, in a slightly, um, you know, exaggerated and unnecessary way in, in both cases. But I just don't, I just don't buy the language of expansionist. As for the nuclear deal, I, I, I mean, for the reasons I said, it isn't that de facto, uh, both of them are active beyond their borders. Of course they are. And, and they would like to influence areas beyond their borders. Of course they would, don't we all? But as for the nuclear deal, I would say uh, you're assuming that when it expired 15 years later or something, um, it would be impossible uh, to get Iran to continue to commit to the uh, non-proliferation treaty, which, by the way, it said it would do. Um, and now maybe it wouldn't, but it said it would do that. Um, and secondly, uh, there is the question of, like, what right do we have to insist otherwise when when Israel India, Pakistan gets nuclear weapons. We say, well, okay, I guess we live with it. It is, it, and it is their sovereign right under international law if they want to either not join the NPT or leave the NPT. And, and so it would well, be Iran's sovereign Pakistan right. Didn't what have nuclear right weapons. do we have just because our allies in the region don't like this country? Um, to say, uh, you know, no, no, sorry. You can't have nuclear weapons and we will, uh, do anything, including bomb you to keep it from having happening. I don't see where that's the right. Now, I would like to see a world in which we have a much more robust non-proliferation arrangement, which would mean that all the countries I just mentioned didn't have nuclear weapons. But, uh, but, you know, we don't. And I don't, I don't understand, uh, why we have the, the, uh, the, I, I feel sure we don't have the right under international law. I don't see where we get the moral right to behave like that. Well, I, 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 I think you've overcomplicated it. I mean, I, I, we can go round and round and I actually have to get going because it's like already 1230, but, um, I, I, I hate to, I don't want to necessarily take no, the last I, word. I'm always but, willing to accept surrender but, on whatever um, terms. I would say that, um, it's pretty simple. Um, Iran is run by, um, fanatics and they have a long history of, uh, blurring the line between statecraft and terror. And if they had a nuclear weapon, um, I'm not saying they necessarily launch a strike first, but it would kind of make give them a kind of invulnerability and further power to cause even more mayhem. So I do believe that it is America's responsibility, but it's going to remain a superpower uh, to do all it can to prevent it. I don't think the nuclear deal did that. 
um, at this point, I hope that uh, we can have a democratic revolution in Iran. And I then I think it would be very easy uh, to deal with this diplomatically. Um, if it doesn't come to that, then I would be in favor of uh, rebelizing uh, their nuclear program. Uh, okay, being the gracious host I am, I'm giving you the last word. Always uh, a pleasure, Bob. Uh, always, and I think we should commend ourselves for yeah. uh, having this vigorous a disagreement. I know I get more animated than you probably, so I Well, see I would also say, I, I mean, I, I think I'm sure we have uh, social friends on who who both, uh, who, 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 I, I have, I, who don't like you or your friends would say, why would you have me on? And I think in this era where it's so easy that we have a kind of a social media of uh, everybody in their foxholes, you know, uh, mm-hmm. sort of almost talking to their own echo chambers. It's it's great to have a discussion with you, uh, with, you know, where we really do have a very different view of the world. And I always I, I think it I, I try to learn from it. And uh, I totally. hope that we can have more. I mean, like, I, I just think one of the problems is that our politics right now, it's like we're having different monologues and nobody's really listening to each other. So. So I think we can end on the note of agreement that you and I are just yes. what America needs right now, Eli. Open. We can also say that on Twitter, you're at Eli Lake, right? It's just your name. Yes. And, I, and yes. I'm at Robert Reiter, W-R-I-G-H-C-E-R. And people should read your, as I said, read your stuff at Bloomberg Opinion and uh, your forthcoming piece and commentary and uh, so on. Maybe we'll have, when, it, when it's out, we can come back. I, I, that one, I, I think we would agree more on, but okay. I, I'd be, I might surprise you. Who knows? But I'd be happy yeah. to do it. So let's... Okay. let's uh, Okay. Thanks, Eli. Thanks, Bob. See you around. See ya.